0: Count the cost before making a commitment, or you may end up owing more than you can pay. Make decisions based on what is true, God's point of view, not on what you want to be true, man's point of view. Students viewed open to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22. As you know, we're in a historical study of First uh, and 2 Kings. It's a record of the monarchy in Israel. Today we're going to conclude 1 Kings with the death of Ahab, who was Israel's worst king. Next week we'll begin uh, 2 Kings, Lord willing. Israel um, was apostate at this point in time. Ahab had made idolatry the law of the land. And he killed those who followed Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That's why the chronicler, the narrator here, records that Ahab was the worst king uh, in Israel. So at this point in history, Ahab has been at war with Israel's northern neighbor, the kingdom of Aram, A-R-A-M, like an Aram sandwich. It's also, depending on your translation, known as Syria. It is modern-day Syria. Damascus is one of the oldest cities on the planet. So it's modern-day Syria. It's north and a little bit east of uh, Israel. And Ahab and Aram have been at war for some time now. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact briefly that Ahab had been given supernatural victories over the kingdom of Aram twice uh, in order to demonstrate the lordship, the, the sovereignty of Almighty God, even though Ahab was apostate and a rebel against the Lord, God blessed Israel with two major victories. The king of Aram was named Ben-Hadad. That's a title like Pharaoh. And as you recall, God had given Aram into Israel's hands because he wanted them to be, uh, in essence, slain. He wanted uh, Ben-Hadad, the enemy of the Lord, to be slain, and Ahab had spared his life. Called him brother, made a trade agreement, signed a peace contract with him, And Ben-Hadad promised to return certain cities in Israel that his father had taken in prior wars. So in 853 BC, which is where we are today, the king of Assyria, uh, Shalomanser III, moved his armies into southern Syria. Now Assyria is even further east. It's on the northern end of the Fertile Crescent. You can probably see a little bit of the map there. And in order to combat this common threat of Assyria invading, uh, Aram, Ahab... Ben-Hadad of Aram and ten other kings form a coalition and they form a coalition to repel the Assyrian invasion. And the major battle in this campaign took place at Karkar, it's on the Orontes River, it's, it's modern-day Syria. Assyria was defeated uh, and they did not mount another military campaign for some years. King Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, south of Israel, you can see Jerusalem on the map. He was not part of this military campaign. Now, since the division of Israel into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north were called Israel, the two tribes in the south were called Judah. So we have two kingdoms now, as you can see on the map. They have been at war, civil war, for about 50 years. Judah and Israel have been at loggerheads. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 22, verse 1. Verse 1. Three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. That's the northern kingdom. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Here's the principle. Count the cost before making a commitment, or you may end up owing more than you can pay. Count the cost before making a commitment, or you may end up owing more than you can pay. Now, remember we just talked about the fact that Assyria had invaded Aram and Israel, northern Israel, had formed a coalition. Well, during that period of time when they're battling Assyria, Judah and Israel are at peace. In other words, there's been no war, and Israel and Aram are at peace as well, because they're fighting a common enemy. However, once Assyria was defeated, the conflict between Israel and Aram resumes. Now, Jehoshaphat, his name means Yahweh has judged. He became king over Judah in 873 B.C. So he's been reigning over Judah at this point about 20 years. And years earlier, Jehoshaphat of Judah had made a treaty with Ahab of Israel and sealed it by contracting a marriage between his son Jehoram and Ahab's daughter Athaliah. So Ahab is a wicked king, and his daughter Athaliah is going to marry Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram, which is going to turn out to be an utter and complete disaster. But it began a 33-year period of an alliance between Israel and Judah. They had been fighting for about 50 years at war with each other, and so Jehoshaphat makes a peace treaty, and back in that day you sealed peace treaties with marriages between your children. The notion being, if my daughter lives in your palace, I'm probably not going to invade your palace, right? My daughter's there. And my grandchildren are there. So it was kind of a good way to inoculate people against warfare. So this chapter takes place in about 854 B.C., one year later. Ahab invites Jehoshaphat to come down to Israel. And 2 Chronicles 18 tells them that they had a party. It says that Ahab slaughtered many sheep and many oxen for uh, Jehoshaphat and his entourage. So this is a formal state occasion, right? They're putting on the dog. This is not a hot dog barbecue. This is, you know, filet mignon, the whole nine yards. They're having a very strong state occasion. He's going to honor the treaty that they have, and Ahab wants to soften up Jehoshaphat for a proposal, a military proposal. Ahab comments to his servants and to Jehoshaphat that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to Israel, but it's being controlled by Aram in the north. Now, the city of Ramoth-Gilead is very strategic. It's about 28 miles east of the Jordan River. It's about 50 miles east of Samaria, and it's located near the Yarmuk River. It was originally part of the tribe of Gad. You remember that when Israel came into the land of Canaan, Three tribes said, we're going to stay on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, the tribe of Gad was one of those, and Ramoth Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River. This city was fought over routinely between Israel and Aram, and it kept changing hands. Depending on who ran the best military campaign, they were ruled by Aram, and then they were ruled by Israel. Now, according to the terms of the treaty signed between Israel and Ahab, uh, Ramoth Gilead should have been returned to control of Israel already, but it hadn't been because Ben-Hadad had broken his promise. So Ahab wants to control this city, but he doesn't think his troops are sufficiently strong to go and fight Aram and take the city. So he goes to Jehoshaphat and he says, will you ally with me and your armies and together we'll invade Ramoth Gilead and take it back and bring it under Israelite control as opposed, as opposed to uh, Aram, Aramian control. Now, he does this for a very specific reason. Jehoshaphat has been faithful to the Lord. We're going to talk about him next week, Lord willing. And Joe, Judah is extraordinarily militarily strong at this point in time. Uh, first and second Chronicles 17 says that Judah's cities were heavily fortified. They had military garrisons everywhere. And I read the numbers and added them up, and it's almost incomprehensible, but apparently Judah could field an army of almost a million troops. So Ahab is not stupid. He says, if I can make an alliance with Judah, together we'll have enough military force, we can invade uh, Aram and take Ramoth Gilead back. What's utterly fascinating is when Ahab proposes this to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat instantly agrees. He said, I'm as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. It's interesting that Jehoshaphat should have figured out, he knew that making an alliance with evil, wicked kings was forbidden. God's people don't make alliances with people that are God-haters, right? We witness to them, but we don't make alliances with them because we're not on the same page. As a matter of fact, later on, we'll find out next week, A prophet of God confronted Jehoshaphat when he came back from the battle, and he said, why is it that you would help the ungodly? Why would you help the wicked, right? So God had a a rebuke for him at that point. But it's interesting, you say, well, why would Jehoshaphat agree to such a foolish proposal? Remember, we said his son was married to Athaliah's daughter. So Ahab is is in-law. So there's family." Have you found that family kind of complicates things? <laughs> Just a little? Your in-laws are kind of complicating your life, right? Um, some of you are going, Brad, that is not even funny. <laughs> that that's that's real serious business here, right? Well, the same thing. So you look at this and say, Jehoshaphat may have felt like, I don't have a lot of choice here. My daughter, my son's married to their daughter. You know, what am I gonna tell them? No. But at any rate, it seems as though as soon as he made the promise, he had second thoughts about whether this was a good thing to do. Look at verse 5. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imelah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Here's the principle. Make decisions based on what is true, God's point of view, not on what you want to be true, man's point of view. Let me say that again. Make decisions based on what is true, God's point of view, not on what you want to be true, man's point of view. So Jehoshaphat figured out just instantly after he made the promise, Ooh, I should not have maybe made that commitment. Let's inquire of the Lord. So he figures out that it's foolish to go to war without God's counsel, right? What is Proverbs 3, 5-6? Most of you know this by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. The reality is, we are not nearly as smart as we think we are. Ever. And if you doubt that, ask someone who knows you well. They will tell you the truth, right? You're probably giving yourself 20, 30 IQ points that you really don't have. You know, I'm just, just saying, right? It, it says, don't trust your own conclusions. Don't trust your own opinions. And when you read social media, it's filled with people that are absolutely convinced that they can advise God part-time because they are so smart, Right? that's an example of people that are trusting in their own understanding, as opposed to saying, Lord, what would you tell me to do, right? So, Joshua says, is there not a prophet of the Lord? We can inquire. So, Ahab calls 400 prophets together and asks them if he should go into battle. Now, these were not prophets of Baal. They'd already been slaughtered by Elijah. These were prophets that were related to the golden calf worship. Remember a number of years earlier, a couple of decades, probably 50-60 years, Jeroboam had built uh, a a temple, if you will, a golden calf at at, uh, uh, Dan, and also one uh, at the southern end of um, Shiloh uh, in Israel, and he instituted the golden calf worship in Israel. These prophets were probably related to the golden calf worship. They did not follow the Mosaic Law, They did not know the Lord God of Israel. They were literally idol worshipers and leading people astray. So these are apostate prophets. These are not prophets of the Lord. They're going to tell Ahab exactly what he wants to hear because they're probably on his payroll, right? It's like you're in an organization and you ask somebody that you write a paycheck to, do you think this is a good idea or not? If you're writing their paycheck, they're probably not going to say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of, boss. I, come on, we're not going to say that. They're going to tell you what you want to hear, and that's what these prophets are doing. So they say, go up, God's going to give you the victory, and Jehoshaphat has enough insight to say, you know, I don't think these prophets are speaking from Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? So he says, Ahab, is there a prophet of Yahweh? Is there a true prophet of God that we can consult? And Ahab says, you know, we've got one, only one, right? Which is interesting, apparently Elijah is unavailable, we don't know where he is at this point, point. and Elisha is unknown, he's his protege, and he's unknown at this point. So in Samaria, they have one godly prophet, and you know where you're going to find him? In prison, right? His name is Micaiah, which means who is like Yahweh. Ahab acknowledges that Micaiah is a true prophet of God, and yet he hates him. Because he prophesies evil about Ahab. Well, he prophesies evil about Ahab because Ahab does evil. You know, if you keep doing evil and you expect God to bless it, probably not going to happen. Ahab doesn't want the truth. He wants sweet delusions. Tell me that I am really smarter than I am. Tell me that I'm prettier than I am. Tell me that I'm younger than I am. Tell me the things that I want to hear, and not the truth. Nothing has changed in our world today. How many of you know people that would rather hear pleasing lies than painful truths? Every election cycle, that's what we hear. (laughs) Vote for me and I will make all your problems go away. It's magical thinking, and I'm not picking on a political class. I'm just saying it's the nature of human nature for us to want to hear pleasing things as opposed to painful things. So Ahab says, Micaiah, how many times do I have to tell you that I don't ever want to hear anything but what the word of the Lord says entirely? Well, that was a lie from scratch, right? Because uh, he says to to Jehoshaphat, Micaiah hates me. That's why he prophesies all these negative things about me. And Joshua says, in essence, I mean, Jehoshaphat says, a genuine prophet of God speaks God's word, not their own opinion." A genuine prophet of God says what God says, not their own opinion, right? Verse 13. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. The messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, he's getting him out of prison, what he's doing. Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah says, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth-Gilead the battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Then the king said, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Here's the principle. Don't ask God a question if you're not willing to accept his answer. (laughs) Some of you are laughing because you think it's funny, some of you are laughing because you know it's true. Don't ask God a question if you're not willing to accept his answer. So Micaiah is under a lot of pressure to go along with the crowd. I mean, you got 400 prophets telling Ahab what he wants to hear, and you know, it would be just nice to go along and tell him what he wants to hear. You know, in our culture today, we, we, we hear this phrase a lot, speaking truth to power, right? Speaking truth to power. A lot of people are saying, well, I'm going to speak truth to power. I'm going to talk to the political class and I'm going to tell them what really is truth, and it, it's a catchphrase. The truth of it is, very few people will speak truth to power if that power will punish you if you tell them the truth. Most people will say what is favorable, what will buy them influence and reward. If you tell people what they want to hear, you'll be rewarded. We've talked about this in class a number of times. One of the great one of the greatest blessings in your life is having people in your life who tell you the truth. And you won't like it when you hear it. Because the truth cuts. The truth is the straight edge and it says, "You're deviating from the straight edge." The truth is the thing that never changes and it holds you up and says, you need to get back in line, because you've drifted, right? That's one of the blessings of Almighty God. He gives us His Word, which never, ever changes. And one of the ways you can tell if you're open before the Lord, is when you read His Word, and it does convict you, it tells you, move your life and align it with this truth. If you can read God's word every day and it never convicts you of sin, that's a problem. Because God's word never changes. It may mean that our spiritual hearing aids, the battery is dead and we have things to confess so we're beginning to hear what God says. So Micaiah says, I'm only going to speak what God says. No more and no less. He would not alter what God said in order to please his human audience. You know, you and I, are under pressure subtly to say politically correct things as opposed to spiritually truthful things, right? I hear pastors all the time, I don't know if they're pastors, but I hear people who purport to be pastors, say things and they tweak God's word to make it more palatable to the culture. You'd never ever misquote God. He is very competent to speak for himself. Our job as God's people is simply to represent God accurately here on earth so that the world can know who He is and how to have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. You speak the truth and you speak it in love, but you speak the truth. And the truth is, without Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in hell separated from God. That's reality. And if people are not convicted of that, then why do they need a Savior? Tell him the truth, all the truth, as it's written in God's word. So Ahab, he asked Micaiah the same question he asked the 400 prophets. And Micaiah already knew that Ahab had already made up his mind. He was going to attack Syria, Aram, regardless of what Micaiah said. So he says the same thing. He knew Ahab didn't really want to know what God said. Ahab was already made up his mind. He was going to invade Ramoth, Gilead, no matter what God said. And Micaiah knew that. So Ahab instantly recognizes that Micaiah was just parroting the same phrase as other prophets did. So he shows this great moral outrage. And he says, didn't I tell you, never tell me anything about what God wants to tell me? Which was a lie because he would put him in prison for telling him what God had told him to do. But that was for Jehoshaphat's benefit. So Ahab is you know, this moral virtueing business, moral virtue signaling. I really want to know what God says. No, you don't. You wouldn't have put the prophet of God in prison if you wanted to know what God said. So Micaiah then tells him, here's what God says. He says, I have a vision of Israel scattered like sheep on the mountains, lost without a shepherd. Well, the message is pretty clear. Israel's going into battle, which they're going to lose, Ahab is going to go in battle and be killed and Israel will have no leader, no shepherd. The sheep are the people of Israel and they will have no leader, no king, because Ahab will be killed. And of course, Ahab tells Joshua, I told you he would say nothing good. See, here's what Ahab wants to do, and this is our culture. He wants to prosper, and he wants to continue in sin. He wants the blessing of God... On his sin. And we say, glibly in our culture, God bless America. And I would say, why would he do that? Why would God bless that which dishonors him? Why would God bless that which spits in his face? Why would God bless sin? God will never ever bless sin. I don't care what country you're from. God will always judge sin. Because he's righteous, he's holy, he hates sin, and he will judge sin. And so for us to say, well, we're never going to be judged, we're in the process of being judged as we speak. You've heard about the frog in the boiling water, right? You, you put it in cold water, you turn the temp up, and the temp goes up. Well, the temperature's getting hotter and hotter, right? But if you don't spiritually wake up, you can be boiled to death in the culture and not figure out what's going on, right? If we want God's blessing and we ask him for wisdom, here's how you get it. Do what he says, right? Obedience is better than sacrifice. We need to do what the Lord says if we want him to bless what we do. Verse 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Then Zedekiah the son of Chenna, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, behold, you shall see it on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. Here's the principle. God works all things together, including human choices, to accomplish his perfect purposes. God works all things together, including human choices, to accomplish his perfect purposes. So God has granted Micaiah a vision of his throne in heaven. That was granted to very few people. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Stephen, and the Apostle John were the only ones that were granted a vision of the Lord God seated on his throne in heaven. Now, all the host of heaven, it says, were standing before God's throne on his right and on his left. When it says all the host of heaven, that seems to imply both good angels that are loyal to God and fallen angels that are rebellious against God. Typically, in scripture, if you're on God's right hand, you're blessed by the Lord, right? And if you're on God's left hand, you're cursed by the Lord. So it seems clear to me, at least tentatively, that this probably includes all the hosts of heaven, which are both good angels and bad angels. By the way, we do know that Satan and demons have access to heaven. We know in the book of Job, we see God interacting with Satan, and so it seems that Micaiah's vision is very congruent with what we see in Job. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So Satan and fallen angels have access to heaven. Now there will come a day in Revelation, you're going to find out in a few weeks, where they get thrown out of heaven. And there's no more access. But right now they have access. And they make accusation against you and I every day. right? Every one of us are being accused by the enemy of uh, treason before the Lord. And, of course, the Lord wants, responds to all of them. That's one of mine. The blood of Jesus Christ covers that. right? So thank God for our advocate, our, our uh, attorney in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God asks the question of the heavenly host. He says, who will entice Ahab to go up? And fall means to be killed at Ramoth Gilead. So it's God's plan that Ahab is going to be killed in this battle as judgment for his refusal to repent from idolatry, even though he'd been warned multiple times, and for his murder of Naboth. In this vision, members of the heavenly host apparently have various suggestions about how to accomplish God's goal of having Ahab fall in this battle. It says a spirit comes forward and volunteers something. We don't know who the spirit is. There's no identity. We don't know whether it's a good angel or a fallen angel, but the spirit offers to deceive Ahab's prophets. And then Ahab's prophets will deceive Ahab into believing that he will succeed in this upcoming battle. By the way, we've talked about this as well. Ahab was influenced by godless counsel. You and I are being inundated with godless counsel every moment of our life, right? Electronic media is a phenomenal communication technology, but you must exercise discernment when you pay attention to it because you're going to be covered up with garbage. And by the way, there's an enormous number of good, truthful, honest podcasts out there, but the vast majority of them, you better exercise discernment, enormous discernment. So the spirit offered to deceive the prophets who would deceive Ahab so he would believe a lie, go into battle, and be killed. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to be killed in this battle. And it says this spirit is a deceiving spirit, which seems to indicate that it was probably a demon, a fallen angel. And God says, go and do it. You are to entice him and succeed. So God approves of this plan and commands that it will come to pass. And you say, well, how if God determined that Ahab was going to die, did he not violate his free will? No. God was giving Ahab what he chose. Ahab was determined to go into battle. God had already warned him through Micaiah, if you go into battle, you're going to die. Ahab said, I'm going into battle anyway. God said, have it your way, right? Here's the interesting principle. If you demand to believe a lie, Despite the fact that God has told you the truth, and you reject his truth, God will give you your own way. And he will allow you to be deceived. Because that's what you want. Romans 1. For even though they, the world, knew God, they did not. They refused to honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile or vain or empty in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. If humanity, who's been exposed to the glory of God through the creation, through their moral conscience, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, all three, if they refuse to honor Him as creator, if they refuse to worship Him as creator, as God, they will wind up worshiping something that he created. And God says, you're going to worship animals, you're going to worship insects, you're going to worship reptiles, you're going to worship demons, and you're going to wind up worshiping yourself. This is why narcissism is so lethal. It exalts the self as equivalent to God. If you refuse to worship God, you will worship something, but it will be something God created, right? Now, we know that God's not the author of evil. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So God is perfectly good. He is not the author of evil. But God will use all things, including evil, to accomplish his good purposes. Now, if you get into the origin of evil, we could be here until dinner and still not get there. We don't know all the reasons why God allows evil to exist. The Bible tells us that God chose to create people because he wanted a love relationship with them. For God so loved the world, right? Love cannot be commanded. Love is a choice. And for you to have a choice, you have to have alternatives. If you have no alternatives, you don't have any choices. So God created with people with free will, yes? You can either choose to love and obey God, or you can choose to reject and hate God and disobey Him. Satan used his free will to do what? Rebel against God. Reject God and God's love. Of course, anything contrary to God's will is evil, that's why Satan is evil. That's why God created what in the Garden of Eden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gave Adam and Eve a real choice. You have a real choice. You have free will and you can either choose to obey or you can choose to disobey. You can choose what is good, God's way, or you can choose what is evil to rebel against God. They had a real moral choice. Ahab had a real moral choice. Either I listen to Micaiah, which is the word of the Lord, or I listen to 400 prophets which are lying to me. I hear a real moral choice. And what does God do today? He gives you and I a real moral choice. We either accept Christ as the payment for our sins, or we trust our own righteousness as payment for our sins. Right? You say, well, thank God that decision's made. But we face that every single morning. You get out of bed in the morning, Are you going to live life your way today, or are you going to live life his way today? If you don't ask him for counsel before breakfast, you've already made a decision. I'm saying before breakfast as a metaphor. There's no time frame here. But many, many times we get out of bed in the morning and things are going okay, and we kind of assume that we got this thing, right? I I can handle this. And we start to pray when what? We get upside the head with a circumstance that gets our attention. We go, man, I don't know if I got this thing. You never had this thing. (laughs) You never got it, right? It's all the grace of God. The fact that you were able to wake up is grace. The fact that you were breathing is grace. The fact that you didn't have a stroke on your pillow. The fact that you went down and you felt the floor, right? I mean, it's all grace. So acknowledging that, Submitting to God's will, consciously asking for his guidance every single day, is that moral free will that God created. Now, when Micaiah told Ahab that God had proclaimed disaster against him, Zedekiah came over and slapped Micaiah on the face. By the way, that was a major insult in that era. And he said, how did the Spirit of the Lord come from me to you? In other words, we're prophesying different outcomes. Micaiah, you're prophesying disaster, I'm prophesying success. I have the Spirit of God, so what are you talking from? Well, it's exactly the opposite at that point, right? So in response to that, Micaiah gives Zedekiah an absolutely empirical, verifiable prediction. He said, when the battle is over and Ahab is dead, you are going to go into hiding. Because Ahab's wife Jezebel and Ahab's son Ahaziah are going to try and kill you. Because you're the one who prophesied victory. And your prophecies led Ahab to his death. You're going to go into hiding because they're going to want to knock you off. And of course, we know that absolutely happened. Verse 26. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Amnon, the governor of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, listen all you people. In other words, Micaiah, put put him in prison, feed him moldy bread, foul water, but only enough to barely survive. Micaiah gives the people a second empirical verification to prove that. He says, if Ahab returns home in peace, Yahweh did not speak through me. In Israel, if you were a prophet of God and you were a true prophet of God, it was determined by two things. Number one, did your prophecies come true? They had to come true 100% or you were a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18.21 says, God speaking to Israel through Moses, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Quote, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Second test of a true prophet of God, did they counsel obedience to the Lord? Deuteronomy 13.1 if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, quote, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord. So if they tell you, I have got a sign, and I make a prophecy, and it comes true, It doesn't matter if the miracle comes true. If they counsel disobedience to the Lord and rebellion against the Lord, they're a false prophet. They do not speak for the Lord and they are to die as a consequence of that. So we know Micaiah is a true prophet of God. One, he counseled obedience to the Lord. And second, his prophecy is going to be visibly fulfilled in a matter of days because Ahab will certainly die in battle. And Micaiah prophesied what he did knowing that if it didn't come true, he could be executed. Now, that's courage of your convictions, right? Speaking the truth, even if it costs you your life. Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into the battle, but you put on your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. So they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Here's the principle. God is gracious and often rescues us from our foolish choices. I was going to say from our stupidity, but I thought I would be nice. God is gracious and often rescues us from our foolish choices. I said often because sometimes God says, your education will only occur if I let you experience all the consequences of your foolish choices. But many, many, many times we make disobedient decisions and God in his mercy doesn't give us all the consequences of our foolish choices. Yes? Many of us would not be here if God let us experience all the consequences of our foolish choices. So, when you read the narrative, it's pretty clear that Ahab, even though he's disobeying God through Micaiah, he secretly fears that this prophecy might actually come true, so he disguises himself as a common soldier. So he's just wearing ordinary, you know, soldier's uniform. And it seems clear that Ahab wants the Syrians to think that Jehoshaphat was the king of Israel. So they would kill him and not him, right? Jehoshaphat, you wear your royal robes, right? And I'm going to go in as a common soldier, what is completely not clear is why Jehoshaphat could be talked into putting a target on his back. You know, I'm, I'm the only guy here wearing royal robes. It seems clear to anybody looking that this is the king. So you should fight the king and try and kill him. I, I don't know whether Jehoshaphat wasn't concerned because Micaiah had already predicted Ahab's death and not his. Maybe Ahab told Joshua, Jehoshaphat, you know, you're going to be the commanding officer of this battle. So you wear your royal robes. I I don't know what the deal is. Or maybe Jehoshaphat was just plain naive. I I don't know. He liked being seen as the king. Even worse, and this begs the question, why would Jehoshaphat go into a battle that God has already predicted disaster on? God's already said, Ahab, you're going to die in this battle, and you're going to lose the battle, and all Israel is going to go back to their tents. So he joins a battle that he knows is lost. I mean, I know you love your in-laws, but you know there are some things that you probably shouldn't die for. Just saying, right? So predictably, Jehoshaphat's attacked by the Aramean charioteers. They want to kill him. And 2 Chronicles 18.31 says that Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him and the Lord diverted them from him. Now, I don't know whether Jehoshaphat's prayer was or cry was a prayer to the Lord, God help me, I'm in deep trouble. Or whether he was simply crying out, I'm not the king of Israel, I'm not the king of Israel. But at any rate, God graciously delivered Jehoshaphat from certain death. Even though he was in a battle, he should not have been in. With an ally that God said he was going to destroy. Have you ever been in circumstances where you figured out, I shouldn't be here? And then the next question is, how did I get here? What were the decisions that led me from the frying pan into the fire? And why am I staying in the fire and getting barbecued on all sides, right? I mean, what led this decision set? And that's when you read God's Word and He tells you the truth, and that's when you ask the Holy Spirit and reveals it to you. But I can tell you one thing from hard personal experience. You don't become unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you know they're not followers of God, don't align yourself with them. I'm not saying you don't love them. I'm not saying you don't witness to them. I'm not saying you don't have a relationship with them. You do all of those things. You're witnesses. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You do not share their values. You do not share their destination. You're going this way and they ain't, right? So, how can two people walk along the same path unless they agree on the destination? One of you is lying. Be very, very clear, and I think it's useful to analyze those decisions when you get into a set of circumstances you don't like, or, or you believe or not the will of God, it's always useful to do a post-mortem and say, what led me to believing this was a good decision? Because if you don't learn the lesson this time, guess what? You get to repeat the lesson, right? Verse 34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck Ahab the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening. And the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. Here's the principle. God's plans always prevail, despite human efforts to prevent them. God's plans always prevail, despite human efforts to prevent them. See, God's will is always going to be accomplished, even though in this case, it appears that it was a random event, right? A soldier just launches an arrow blindly, randomly into space without a target, but that arrow had an Ahab-seeking sensor on it, right? (laughs) And God, the Holy Spirit, guided that arrow to a joint in the armor. It's probably either a, a legging here or a shoulder. There's joints in the armor, so you can move. And God guided the arrow right to the joint, and it penetrated Ahab. Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once, and today was Ahab's day, because God told him this is what's going to happen. When you go into this battle. It says he was held up by his fellow soldiers in front of the Arameans. It's pretty clear that Ahab wanted to appear to be okay because if the king was dead, usually the troops went back home and the battle was over at that point. So he wanted to present himself as being alive even though he was believing the death moment by moment. It said he died at sunset. and As soon as he died, the battle was over and every soldier retreated back to their city. By the way, they did not take Ramoth Gilead at that point. It says he was buried in Samaria, the capital city. And his bloody chariot was washed out by the pool of Siloam. The bottom of the chariot, of course, had held his blood. He bled to death, literally. And it was obviously an unclean place. And it says, the dogs licked up his blood. We heard that a couple weeks ago that Elijah had prophesied in Naboth's vineyard. Because you have murdered an innocent man and the dogs licked up Naboth's blood in Jezreel, the dogs are going to lick up your blood in the same way. Now, Ahab serves as a warning. Clearly, we've talked about in Scripture. One of the beauties of this narrative portion of Scripture, this historical portion of Scripture, is it's heavily biographical. And one of the beauties of biography is every single life is either an example, right? Do what they did, they followed God, or a warning. Don't do what they did, they did not follow God. Guess where Ahab falls on that continuum? Don't do what Ahab did, right? He's the worst king in Israel from an immorality standpoint, from an obedience standpoint. So when you read this portion of Scripture, and I just encourage you to read through this at some point, God gives us example after example after example of kings who followed him and obeyed him and the outcomes, and of kings who disobeyed him and rebelled against him and the outcomes. And for you and I, this is important to understand. This principle is really critical. On the world stage today, there's lots of political leaders that are plotting and scheming, right? You read about it all the time. So-and-so group is planning this. So-and-so is going to do this, and the politician here or the the king there or the parliament there is going to do that. And all you read about is human plans. And we, as humans, we go, man, those people are large and in charge and they're going to do this and the world is really going to heck in a handbasket and and these evil people are going to prevail. That's not what God's Word says. It says God is going to sovereignly accomplish His purposes through everything. Evil and good. God's purposes will be accomplished. If God's purposes are fulfilled through Satan, believe me, God's purposes can be filled through evil people. Scripture says, Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, and of the son of man that is made like grass? God's people should not be living in fear. Period. You know the King of kings and the Lord of lords who owns this place, who created this place, and as you heard this morning, he's coming back, and he's going to set up his kingdom. God's eternal plans are going to be accomplished through and in spite of God's enemies. And you're going to read all sorts of disasters on the horizon. Stop being thrown off course. Those people are delusional. They think they're in charge. Really? They can't control the weather. They're in charge? Come on. God is in charge. God is merciful. God wants people to stop sinning. And he forgives them when they repent. We've already talked about how many opportunities God gave Ahab to repent. How many prophets he sent to him and says, repent, turn back, stop doing this. I don't want to bring judgment on you. But God is also perfectly just. And he will keep his word to judge sin. Scripture says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What? For whatever you sow, you reap. And at the same time, God says, if you come to me and trust me and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I will take away that sin and lay it on my son. And that's why you and I have hope. Okay, let's review and then I'll ask Marty to come up and do prayer and praise. Number one, principle number one. Prayerfully and carefully count the cost before making a commitment or you might end up owing more than you can pay, or you might wind up going somewhere you don't want to go, right? Number two, make decisions based on what is true, God's point of view, not based on what you want to be true, human point of view. Number three, don't ask God a question if you're not willing to accept His answer. God does not give you His opinion to evaluate it. He gives you a command to obey. Number four, God works all things together, including human choices, to accomplish His perfect purposes. Ahab decided to obey, disobey, and God accomplishes perfect will through His disobedience. Number five, God is gracious and often rescues us from our foolish choices. Praise His name, He is grace. And lastly, God's plans always prevail, despite human efforts to prevent them. Thank you uh, for your attention. Um, Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. I'm going to be dipping into both books. And we're planning on looking at the life of Jehoshaphat, the good king of Judah. Uh, I love you all. Now that you know, do.